Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. Hard to believe uh, we're almost at the end of another week. But then again, tomorrow is Friday. As I said at the start of the week, it is hard to believe that this week is the last full week in uh, February. For some of you, uh, you all may be under uh, the threat of snow, especially if you live up in the um, northeast, uh, most notably in New York, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine. Um, for those of you in the upper Midwest, uh, Minnesota, um, the upper peninsula of Michigan, uh, into the uh, mainland of Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, Great Plains, you are definitely under uh, threat of snow. Where I live in Virginia, it's been uh, record highs. And what I mean by record highs is unseasonably warm weather. But what do you know? Come tomorrow, it's going to be 20 degrees cooler, and then this weekend, it's supposed to be cold. It's been uh, quite a... Um, seesaw of weather to say the least now i will tell you all in this much that uh, we are getting towards the very end of this uh, podcast uh, book topic series on the tragedy of benedict arnold and i point that out now because uh, from the previous uh, episode we talked about how um, three unsung heroes or really three average joe militiamen came to um how do you say it? they came to um, a situation that was not perhaps originally called upon for them to partake in, although we might as well say that these uh, three men had uh, what we think of as like night duty or uh, watch duty. In other words, they're at their station watching who is coming, who's going, and perhaps spotting someone that they don't recognize based upon his attire that he's wearing. Those three men being uh, John Paulding, Isaac Van Wert, and David Williams. As I said from the previous podcast episode, the, that their names would be mentioned at some point again before this um, series uh, on Benedict Arnold ended. But we must be reminded that uh, even the most unsung of heroes in this great conflict against the mother country at, at the time of the Revolution made significant contributions that um, must not be forgotten. And it is easy to assume that it was a greater um, network force that captured John Andre. But in fact, it was three men who went above and beyond to perform what we would call a modern-day um, inspection, or not so much an inspection, but a modern-day um, standard procedure practice that you would find at airports through uh, TSA, Transportation Security Administration. You know, we, when you go into an airport, you get uh, screened, and then obviously you have to take um, everything that's out of your um, jeans, uh, you know, like wallet, um, anything that could uh, perhaps pose as a hazard. Well, little did these three men know that while, yes, they were inspecting this individual, Little did they know that by asking John Andre to take off his boot, that they found a bulge in his stocking, a bulge that pretty much left a gap so wide that there were papers, papers that, that had potential to pretty much seal America's fate. I personally believe had John Andre gone on unchecked, had John Andre been, not been asked to take off his boot, he would have eventually, um, 
Who's to say that maybe somewhere down the road he might have gotten caught? But at the same time, who's to say what would have become of the um, of the young United States? I mean, of course, Britain is still recognizing her as a um, as colonial America, but the bottom line is that had uh, John Paulding, Isaac Van Wert, and David Williams had they not gone above and beyond to perform those un- those extra steps for um, security um, protection, not just for their own well-being, but for that of uh, of Greater America, West Point would have fallen. And perhaps America would have uh, been ultimately forced to surrender back to the mother country as her superior, um, as her superior uh, chief command, chief commander. In other words, America would have had to have, and uh, the thirteen colonies, I should say, would have been forced to surrender to um, to the mighty empire in that of uh, King George III. So there's a lot of what ifs, but. It does pay to have unsung heroes being at the right place at the right time. Now, in this uh, podcast uh, segment episode, we're going to learn about the fate of John Andre. What will happen to him? We will also learn, uh, in order to understand what will become of John Andre's fate, we will have to learn about uh, someone else whom was uh, captured before John Andre, but this man was captured on the other side, being that of the British. But we will also learn whether or not the stories involving this other uh, spy have same similarities to what will become of John Andre's fate. We will also learn more about um, about Peggy Shippen. After all, I think from the last uh, podcast episode, uh, George Washington did give her um, an approval based upon a letter that Benedict Arnold had written, stating that uh, for that Peggy um, could go to one of two places. She could either go back to uh, Philadelphia or she could join him in New York. We will learn. We, we will need to learn um, what it's like, what what it will be like uh, for Peggy in terms of in terms of whether or not coming home was the same prior to when she originally left at the start of September of 1780 to join her husband um, right near uh, West Point, where the inevitable could have happened, but yet it was foiled. So anyways, let's fasten our seatbelts and get this show on the road. So here's our first leadoff question. To the tragedy of Benedict Arnold, what's the best way to describe having learned about Benedict Arnold's defection from a national, or rather, I should say, a nationwide perspective? I personally don't believe there's one answer, but if I was alive in 1780 and I learned of this defection by a prominent officer, I mean, an officer who has overcome a lot of obstacles, just when you think he's ready to throw in the towel, Washington always seems to have a new assignment for him, and and Arnold has always answered the call of duty to the utmost um, diligency. He has always answered that call of duty by going the extra mile to um, do whatever it takes to um, help ensure that those whom have given him the assignment 
know that he is a valuable asset despite those who don't like him, most notably Horatio Gates, if I can give you the best example there. But given what's happened now, what do you all think would be the best way to describe having learned about Arnold's defection from an overall national, nationwide perspective? Well, the news alone caused a majority of the American people to become enraged, angered, shocked, stunned, pure state of disbelief. I think those are just some of a handful of many uh, ways to describe what it must have been like uh, when having learned of uh, Benedict Arnold's defection. Now, of course, as I've said before, I say it again, you know, technology obviously in terms of how you learn about the news in 1780 is not the same as it is in 2023. But when you uh, read about it in a newspaper, or what you call the, uh, the da a daily gazette from, say, one of the uh, major cities, the news that you would have gotten regarding Arnold's defection probably would have been at least two weeks old at most, depending on where you were living. But regardless of how old we would think of the news being in today's time. When you receive the news, even if it was, even if the event happened two weeks earlier and you first learned about it, I guess it was a big deal. So for me, if I was alive in 1780 and I uh, learned about this news, uh, say two weeks after the defection had happened, my jaw would have dropped. I would have been shaking my head. I would have been like, "You've got to be kidding me! Are you really sure?" that this is Benedict Arnold. Why would he want to do something like this? How could he betray George Washington, whom stuck his neck out for him? How could he betray so many other people? Well, one thing I could tell you all is that Benedict Arnold was not the only individual who um, defected to the other side or uh, switched sides during the Revolutionary War. Both sides had their share of defectors. Both sides engaged in spy-related activities to where, yes, obtaining information was important, but at the same time, who's to say that the spy or the spies performing their tasks weren't also selling secrets to the enemy? Um, one man who, uh, not to get off track here, but during the early stages of the American Revolutionary War, there was a doctor in Boston who was a part of the Sons of Liberty, that famous organization whose uh, Boston chapter included Samuel Adams, John Hancock, uh, Dr. Joseph Warren, Paul Revere. This fellow by the name of Dr. Benjamin Church, you know, the others thought he was just as loyal to the cause for independence, but it turns out that Dr. Church had been going behind everyone else's backs at the Sons of uh, Liberty's uh, chapter in Boston. He went before British, um, he went before the British, most notably General Thomas Gage and other high-ranking officers, and revealed sensitive information about the Patriots, given that uh, that the given that this was um, around the time that the siege of Boston began. General uh, George Washington eventually found out who it was, and Dr. Church was supposed to have been um, the chief uh, physician or surgeon of the Continental Army, 
Washington respected the guy, but as soon as he learned about this, it took some time for him to finally figure out who it was. As a matter of fact, uh, Washington learned that, that the source of um, the primary source stemmed from Rhode Island. I know that sounds complicated, given that you know Dr. Church lives in Massachusetts, but we also should keep in mind too that that uh, people who are engaged in spy-related activities or anything that's treasonous do have contacts, say, in the neighboring uh, colony or state. Long story short of it, when George Washington learned of Dr. Church's activities and that he had been um, providing secrets to the British about the Sons of Liberty movement in Boston, he was enraged, angered. He, it, it got down to the point where Washington finally said, look, if I can't trust Dr. Benjamin Church, who can I trust? So the, bigger, the big question now for George Washington is, who can he trust now at this point in the stage, given that the year 1780 is not going to be probably one of the best years for the Continental Army? Of course, this whole uh, war itself has seen its shares of great highs and great lows. For every big victory there is, there does seem to be a low point as well. And here we are in September of 1780 at another at, at a low point that should never have happened, but yet it happened because Benedict Arnold, all he cared about was Benedict Arnold himself, including achieving glory, fame, all because he was no longer satisfied with the American cause. He was no longer satisfied with the direction that his country was going in. Remember, he was influenced by that letter written by Colonel Robinson, whom was trying to persuade those whom were no longer or whom no longer felt loyal, not only in terms of being Americans, but in terms of being loyal to this cause to why not just defect if you're not happy? I have to wonder if Benedict Arnold will realize if his defection we have to wonder by defecting, is he going to realize that the grass is going to be any greener than than it perhaps wasn't on the American side at the moment or time that he chose to defect? Who knows? But the bottom line is is that nobody was immune to dealing with uh, people who uh, were engaging in activities that were improper, that led to treason, uh, defection, change of loyalties. It, it was just one of those things that sadly couldn't be avoided. So extremism comes afterwards, folks, where mob crowds go into the streets left and right in places like Norwich, Connecticut, Benedict Arnold's hometown, where rioters overturned the elder Benedict Arnold's gravestone. Uh, Benedict Sr., New Milford, Connecticut, saw its people carry models, in this case effigies, paper models, of Benedict Arnold, and believe it or not, Satan, through the streets. In Philadelphia, there was a parade consisting of effigies of Arnold and Satan. In this case, Satan had a pitchfork while offering gold. So in other words, the devil, in this case, is portrayed on one hand as just average Joe, uh, a farmer who has given up everything he's um, got on his own property to go out and fight uh, this noble cause. And then on the other side, then on the other hand, you've got gold. In other words, 
oftentimes people who um, sold secrets out to the enemy were often motivated by money to do it. That was one, th one of the big reasons for why Benjamin Church, or Dr. Benjamin Church from Massachusetts, uh, provided secrets to, to uh, top-level British officials about the uh, Sons of Liberty movement. And as a matter of fact, none of the other members in that chapter were ever able to figure out that Dr. Church sold them out. Dr. Church still remained present at their meetings. That's how he was pretty much able to uh, prevent himself from becoming a would-be suspect. So it's always easy to assume that when you're in a meeting with others, that everybody around you can be trusted. But we must keep in mind that there's always that one person whom will betray. And it can be, it can mean, uh, it could be for various reasons, but oftentimes it can be for money. And sadly, money does talk, and it does not always talk for the right reasons. Did Arnold's uh, defection have a, a profound impact on Europeans whom were still considering whether to support America's cause for independence? I think this ought to be a no-brainer, but the answer is yes. In the midst of Arnold's defection, John Adams, listen to this folks, John Adams was overseas in the Netherlands. Okay, what's he doing overseas in the Netherlands? He's not on vacation, folks. He's over in the Netherlands trying to secure a loan. He's trying to secure a loan from the, from the Dutch with, with the hopes that even though things might be going a little sour right now in 1780, that the Dutch still have, have faith in America, that America can still find a way to defeat the mightiest empire in the world. But as soon as the Dutch learn of Benedict Arnold's defection, they don't take very keen to wanting to lend us any money. And it's not so much because of the defection, but it's also, uh, it also has to do with, um, um, with recent American defeats. In mid-May 1780, the Continental Army under General Benjamin Lincoln, who just so happened to be Horatio Gates' second-in-command from Saratoga, Benjamin Lincoln surrendered an army of the continent. He surrendered what was the Southern Continental Army of 5,400 uh, troops to, uh, to British forces after a, a siege in Charleston that probably lasted at best just shy of 10 weeks. It was one of those battles that probably didn't need to happen. It's often been considered one of those um, matters where Link, Benjamin Lincoln should have um, not engaged in, in warfare. But, of course, if, if he hadn't, he also knew that there would have been a faction that would have labeled him a coward for not trying to go up against the British. But, sadly, Lincoln surrenders, and, and not just the fact that he surrendered— a force of 5,400, but how about August of 1780? The British British forces uh, routed General Horatio Gates, who at that time, folks, is the southern is the uh, co head commander of the Southern Continental Army. It was a decision that George Washington um, vehemently opposed, but yet Congress did not. Um, Congress did not consent or uh, talk with him 
ahead of time about the appointment. They basically, you know, went behind his back and wanted Horatio Gates, given that Gates had a stellar um, performance in Saratoga. Well, Horatio Gates's uh, leadership in the South was just, um, it was pitiful. He didn't know how to engage in uh, guerrilla-style fighting, irregular-style fighting, that is. And, of course, after Gates um, left, that's when Nathaniel Green came into play. But all of these um, issues are, um, are having a negative impact on whether or not European nations, most notably the Dutch, want to, want to lend us any kind of money. So John Adams is stuck between a rock and a hard place, and it's not like he could just call up and say, hey, uh, what's the next available flight uh, for me to leave Europe to come back to America? It just doesn't work like that in 1780, folks. Now, uh, Arnold's defection, it wasn't just um, impacting the general public. His defection angered all officers, including soldiers, whom had previously come into contact with him. Yes, I can't imagine being um, part of that regiment in Saratoga that carried him off a stretcher and, and sent him to a, um, into a um, hospital that was right nearby where he got the care he needed. Of course, he would get sent, um, you know, he, would, he got sent back all the way back down to Albany. But I can't imagine being that uh, group of, um, of uh, soldiers whom stuck their necks out for him, given that Arnold had said, you know, I wish it had been my heart and not my leg, knowing that he had said that, said that to a Captain um, Henry Dearborn. So it's just, it's not just one or two officers that are angered. It's the whole nine yards of officers, uh, most notably even Nathaniel Green. Now, as for uh, Hannah Arnold, Benedict's sister, and she has... She has constantly gone above and beyond to help her brother out. She is still living in Philadelphia, raising his youngest uh, son. While learning of her uh, brother's defection, Hannah was no stranger to witnessing her brother's absences, which were um, multiple, uh, and they were long-term. He would come home for a while, then go back out and fight this noble cause but his absences did have a long-term uh, profound impact, and especially the dangers he was facing during combat. But Hannah herself was very hurt by how the war itself caused pain for the family as a whole. And I think now the biggest uh, state of pain is his defection. He didn't even bother to tell her what he was going to do. But, of course, if he had been stupid enough to have done that, don't think for one second Hannah would have probably wanted to have smacked him upside the head to the point where she would have said, Have you lost your mind, Benedict? <laughs> yes, we would all say that he has, that he is going to lose his mind. So there was something known as the distress, distressful step, desertion, defection. I can't imagine what Peggy, I mean, not Peggy, that what Hannah Arnold was dealing with, knowing that, okay, everybody else now knows about this. Are they going to blame me for my brother's defection when I didn't even tell him to do this? It was his choice. Would Peggy Shippen's return? Okay, folks, you know, Peggy wanted to go back to Philadelphia to be with her family. She did go back, but let's find out 
whether or not her return to Philadelphia was meant was meant to be. Uh, would Peggy Shippen's return to Philadelphia be one of normalcy, despite many people having already taken their frustrations or hostilities out by burning effigies of her husband? As much as we all would like to believe that any return back home, even in the midst of an internal family conflict or in the midst of a conflict that not only is internal, but it does impact the rest of the community, we would like to think that it won't get so out of hand to where um, extremism goes doesn't go unchecked. Well, uh, the, the sad part is, is that uh, Peggy's uh, return was not good. She would have been better off just going to New York and being with Benedict. But that's not to say that there still would have been violence, uh, mob violence in Philadelphia. But she would have been better off just going to New York. She should have spared herself any um, further unnecessary agony. So less than a month after returning to Philadelphia, the Pennsylvania Executive Council issues a statement. Come October 27th of 1780, denouncing Peggy's presence in Philadelphia, given it had become a threat to overall public safety, including her husband's defection. The council advised that Margaret, a.k.a. Peggy Arnold, they advised her that she had 14 days after October 27th to leave Pennsylvania. That means that 14 days starting October 28th to November 10th, that's, in other words, two weeks, folks, is what she gets. She's getting two weeks to leave Pennsylvania and would not be allowed to return at any time during the remainder of the war's duration. Think about this now, folks. There's a reason why the Pennsylvania Executive Council doesn't... There are. There's probably more than one reason, but if I had to pick one reason, folks, it would have to do with the fact that if Peggy Arnold is allowed to stay in Philadelphia. Who's not to say that she might be trying to... Who's not to say that she might be um, selling out other uh, secrets? Who's not to say that she could be... Um, be engaging in other um, improper activities with those individuals whose loyalties are to that of king and country? Who's not to say that Peggy could be helping plot another um, event, maybe not in Philadelphia, but somewhere else, say in Maryland or um, Virginia, where, you know, there are, you know, Virginia being the largest of the 13 colonies, where there are still, there could still be a long, there could still be a good loyalist stronghold in certain parts of Virginia, most notably in Tidewater, where um, there's, a, you know, broad population you know, people come and go, find ways to come and go quickly. But the fear is, is that if Peggy Arnold stays in Philadelphia, she is not only becoming a hazard to herself, but she could also become a hazard to other people who's, who, are, who are still neutral, who um, could defect at a moment's notice. I mean, this is really a matter of national security almost. To me, it is. So... Edward Shippen, who is Peggy's father, of course there are um, a handful of Edward, Shipp Edward Shippens. Uh, Peggy's grandfather was Edward Shippen, whom founded um, 
Penn University, as well as uh, the College of New Jersey, what we now know as uh, Princeton University. But Peggy's father, uh, his name was Edward. He was allowed to accompany his daughter through uh, approval of uh, the Pennsylvania Executive Council. Uh, Edward Shippen was uh, allowed to accompany his daughter a majority of the way to New York. Edward Shippen did try other uh, measures for the council to uh, consider upon, such as uh, Peggy uh, willing to sign a letter stating that she would not write any letters to her husband. I think that would be a hard one um, to agree upon because, you know, people, you know, the only way you can communicate, obviously, is by letter. Think about it. We don't have any texting. There's no phone. I know I've said that a lot, but but we just need to be reminded of the communication uh, means at this time in the 18th century. But even if the Pennsylvania Executive Account, Executive Council agreed to this uh, proposal of uh, her father's, how could it be enforced? How could they really take the family's word and say, okay, if you agree not to write to your husband, you can stay here in Pennsylvania. That just isn't going to work. So the council denied that request. Edward Shippen did return to Philadelphia on December the 21st of 1780. He would continue uh, his correspondence with Peggy. And it just so happened that Peggy was his favorite child. So some of you are probably wondering, then how could your favorite child... Um, have partaken in activities that led up to what her husband has done. Folks, is it fair to say that uh, maybe Peggy Shippen did in fact, was Peggy Shippen in fact perhaps aware of all that was uh, going on? Yes, she was. She may have um, screamed, fainted, but that was all for show. Historians are pretty convinced now that that when she fainted, it was just all for show, but that she knew what was going on. I mean, she has she had close to, ties to John Andre. There was even a a brief relationship between the two before she uh, became fully acquainted with Benedict Arnold. So connections like those, while they may be good, they can also be dangerous. And Peggy, being at the center of um, balls. Uh, theater plays. She wasn't missing out on anything, but she was also developing connections that ultimately posed a threat to the Continental Army's well-being, most notably at West Point. And sadly or not, believe it or not, folks, this is, it's sad, regardless of uh, whose side one is on, only one, only once more, in person, did Peggy Arnold and her father, Edward Shippen, ever see one another before they passed away? That, to me, is a tragedy. Had Peggy not engaged in what she had uh, partaken in, none of this would have happened. How did uh, General Washington go about moving forward with the matter involving Arnold's defection? Come September 29, 1780, Washington ordered the case of John Andre, Arnold's British spy agent contact, to be heard by a board of senior military officers consisting of men from 
Major Generals Nathaniel Green, who is the presiding officer, Arthur St. Clair, Lord Sterling, the Marquis de Lafayette, Baron von Steuben, just some of the um, a handful of major generals. There were other uh, officers, most notably Brigadier Generals, who were present, most notably um, at this hearing, like Brigadier General Henry Knox. You had uh, John Stark, John Glover, uh, just to name a few of the Brigadier Generals. But it was a good number of um, officers there, nonetheless. This board was to decide what kind of punishment ought to be imposed upon John Andre. The board was made up of six major generals and eight brigadier generals. That's 14 um, officers total, folks. 14. So you better hope that you can get a majority and not run into any deadlocks over, over truly what ought to be the best punishment in terms of what's at stake. John Andre and uh, Joshua Het Smith, who was Andre's accomplice, each were incarcerated at Tappan. The Reformed Church of Tappan, and Tappan is spelled T-A-P-P-A-N. Believe it or not, folks, the Reformed Church of Tappan dates back to 1716, and it is still standing today. That and uh, where Tappan is located, it's in uh, Orangeburg County, New York, uh, towards the uh, southernmost part of uh, New York State. Not, not too far from uh, the city. Orangeburg is probably not far from uh, like Rockland County, um, probably just south of uh, what we call like Catskill Country and uh, Ulster and uh, Greene County, uh, Delaware County, just to name a few of the Catskill counties. But, anyways. Um, John Andre, the reason why the Church of Tappan is important is because that's the site of where John Andre's hearing and trial took place. Well, when John Andre um, came before the board, uh, the board of 14 officers, I should say, he, believe it or not, he was in the same attire that he got captured dating back a few days earlier. So think about it, you know, you're in jail, folks, back then, you don't get a change of clothes. You pretty much wear what you have on from the time you were first captured. I mean, you don't, there, there's no um, modern-day shower. There's, I mean, let's just keep that in mind, folks. So, um, so yes, he's in his, he's still in the same attire that he was uh, captured from a few days earlier, being September 23rd. Andre, believe it or not, folks, John Andre wasn't defiant. He, um, I think it's fair to say that he was probably far more relaxed than most of us would have been if we were in his shoes. He answered everything before him by all officials. He went as far as confessing to carrying out Arnold's mission. I'm wondering if, by Andre confessing, if he's thinking that, okay, if I confess that I might get a, um, a lighter sentence or maybe I won't um, die under the um, harshest of circumstances. Well, we'll just have to find out and see. Prior to arriving at Tappan, John Andre and Joshua Smith, his accomplice, were transported in two separate barges down the Hudson River. Neither man was permitted to speak to one another. 
think about it. It's smart. Why would you put both of these men in the same barge? Well, if you put them both in the same barge, what would they try to do? They, they might try to escape. If, they, if both can't escape, hopefully one would be able to m- make it um, off the boat and onto um, shore and, and be considered a, a wanted fugitive. So, no, you've got to put them both in separate boats so this way they can't um, come up with any kind of um, plot to, um, to cause further trouble. Now, it was while um, en route to Tappan, John Andre, with uh, permission from Benjamin Talmadge, Washington's chief intelligence officer, John Andre did point out to Benjamin Talmadge the exact spot, or I should say location, where the British intended to launch their attack, and that is um, their attack on West Point with with the intended result of the Americans surrendering the fort. Andre asked Benjamin Talmadge how he would get treated by Washington in the military um, hearing. In other words, how was how was Washington how is Andre going to be treated by Washington and the officers? Uh, presiding over this uh, hearing. Colonel Talmadge responded by uh, referring to a story, and this is where we've got to uh, talk about another officer whom we have not, uh, or I should say individual whom we have not talked about once at all in this uh, book topic series, but his name did not get mentioned until the very end of this book, so that explains why we're finally going to be talking about him. So, John uh, Benjamin Talmadge, pardon me, he responded by referring to a story of a man named Nathan Hale, who just so happened to be a classmate of Talmadge's from Yale College. Of course, we know we know it now as Yale University, but back in colonial days, it was known as Yale College. Hang tight for just a moment, folks. Got to get some. Um, tea in me and nothing beats a good glass of um tea is like is what i've always said Uh, i do enjoy drinking hot tea Uh, it is good for you nonetheless so here's a question here's the lead-off question to what we're going to be talking about now with regards to nathan hale pay very careful attention despite talmadge and hale's friendship from yale college days why is Nathan Hale's story important, knowing what Talmadge shared with John Andre? Okay, well, it's not confined to, to, to one answer, folks. Uh, there's a couple of answers, so how about we uh, start finding out now? Well, for starters, Nathan Hale joined a Connecticut militia unit in 1775, shortly after shots fired round the world at Lexington and Concord in April of 1775. After five months from first having enlisted, he became, the first, he became first lieutenant, but he stayed behind. Okay, he stayed behind, and there's a reason why he stayed behind. While, he, while staying, although he stayed behind while his unit took part in the Siege of Boston, come July 4th of 1775, Nathan Hale received a letter from his classmate and friend, Benjamin Talmadge, 
that was so inspirational to where Nathan Hale took on a new role by serving in another Connecticut regiment only to work his way up for advancement into a group that might be considered the equivalent of, of today's time as like the Green Berets, Navy SEAL, or Delta Force. This group became known as Knowlton's Rangers, and Knowlton spelled K-N-O-W-L-T-O-N. Uh, the group became known as Knowlton's Rangers. It was the first established intelligence service organization, which formed around mid-August 1776. It's named for Thomas Knowlton, the commander of the Rangers organization. There is a town in New York State outside of uh, Syracuse known as Knowlton, New York. So if you ever hear of Knowlton, New York, you can uh, think of um, Thomas Knowlton, who was the um, commander of this uh, prestigious um, unit that was um, whose fundamental purpose was to uh, gather intelligence on the opposing force, being that of the uh, British. Think of uh, Knowlton's Rangers, it might be fair to say, as like the earliest version of a modern-day CIA, Central Intelligence Agency. Now, we move to August of 1776. The British invasion of New York City began, and they came with the full nine yards. You've probably heard me say that before in other podcast topics. But when the British came to New York, they were serious. They, I mean, they brought everything. Thousands of men, hundreds and hundreds of boats were making their way into New York Harbor. They, they really, they brought the big guns. They were serious. It was, it was their way of saying, hey, look, you may have driven us away from Boston. You all may have won Boston, but our heads weren't hanging low, weren't going to be hanging low for a long time. We'll be back, but when we do come back, we are going to be not just at 100%. We're going to be beyond 100% in terms of our strength and capacity. You'll really get to see the British military at its full force, sea and land. So, August 27th of 1776, the British routed the Continental Army at the Battle of Long Island, thanks in large part to a surprise counterattack from Staten Island across Brooklyn. Washington was in desperate need of trying to locate the exact point of the British invasion of Manhattan. He was, in order to be able to locate the exact point of where the British invasion of Manhattan was going to take place, he needs, he needs more than one man to answer the call of duty in trying to find that location. I mean, Washington can use a telescope all he wants but a telescope isn't going to be able to determine the exact point of um, location for where the British invasion is going to happen. So a fellow by the name of Nathan Hale answers the call of duty by going behind enemy lines as the only volunteer willing to risk perhaps his life, knowing that going behind enemy lines um, is dangerous, and, it, and if caught, it could mean uh, punishment by death. So on September 8th of 1776, he first went behind enemy lines and reported British troop movements. Once Hale uh, went behind enemy lines, he knew he risked getting caught, which, as I said earlier, meant punishment by death, in this case, hanging. 
September 12, 1776, Nathan Hale was transported via ferry across Long Island Sound to Huntington, New York, which was uh, held uh, firmly in the hands of the British, uh, being that of, I should say, Long Island. Nathan Hale intended to, to disguise himself as a Dutch schoolteacher looking for work. It's one thing to um, disguise yourself as someone who's opposite. But even a disguise alone cannot guarantee safe passage. Sadly, Nathan Hale, if he, he did make a mistake here, folks. He did not travel under an alias. He used his Yale diploma, which sadly included his name. Nathan Hale was captured by Major Robert Rogers of the Queen's Rangers around mid-September. Robert Rogers did not believe Hale's story, that he was a teacher in search of work. Rogers lured Hale into believing that he too was a Patriot spy when, he, when in fact he was on the British side. Colonel Talmadge asked John Andre if he recalled what happened to Nathan Hale after getting captured. Andre wasn't sure. He was clueless. So Talmadge proceeded forward by telling John Andre that Nathan Hale had been treated inhumanely by the British. He was deprived by not getting, a right, by not getting um, the right to have a fair trial, or just a trial in general. He was denied service of a chaplain, who could have read to him his last rites before, before his punishment. He was even denied um, access to a Bible in which he could, have read, he could have read a verse out loud before his ultimate uh, death. The morning of September 22, 1776, 11 weeks and three days after delegates in Philadelphia approved the Declaration of Independence, by severing all ties with the mother country via England, a.k.a. England, Nathan Hale marched along Post Road near present-day 66th and 3rd Avenue in New York City. He, he was sentenced to death by hanging folks, and he died at the age of 21. You know, it's so easy to walk on a major intersection, think, oh, nothing happened here, say, 200-some years ago. Well, going forward, if I was walking on walking on uh, 66th and 3rd Avenue in New York City, I think I ought to be reminded, day in and day out, that someone did risk their own life. Their, their own life. Not only for the time that he lived in, but he risked his own life so that future generations could live under freedom and not live under tyrannical rule. Did Nathan Hale die for a, a noble cause? Yes, he did. He died knowing that there was a chance he could get caught. But did Nathan Hale sell out his country? No, he didn't. So John Andre went as far as asking Colonel Talmadge if his own personal situation bore resemblance to Hale's. Talmadge said yes, and like Hale, Andre too would die the same death, death by hanging. 
September 29, 1780, a board of, the board of 14 officers found John Andre guilty of being behind American lines under an assumed name, along with being considered as a spy from the enemy. Punishment, death by hanging. General Washington and General, um, British General Henry Clinton exchanged letter replies regarding Andre's fate. Washington postponed the execution date to October 2nd, giving, allowing Clinton's representatives extra time to plead on Andre's behalf. General Green, uh, General Nathaniel Green, met met with met with those three representatives of Clinton's, whom provided letter from Arnold to Washington, expressing compassion for Peggy in terms of allowing her to return to Philadelphia including a request of sparing John Andre's life. I'm sure George Washington would, would give anything in the world to have his hands on Benedict Arnold's neck right now. I would too if I was in his shoes. As John Andre's execution was nearing, what became of Benedict Arnold's status? Well, given his plans for ending the Revolutionary War by surrendering West Point failed, Arnold was now viewed as useless given his new exposure led others within higher ranks of British Army to label him a traitor. Arnold also compromised the chief of British, the chief of British intelligence, whom was a close friend to General Clinton. And one of the biggest mistakes that I think General Clinton made was that he never should have taken Benedict Arnold along. Yes, Arnold had knowledge of West Point, but what did Arnold not do, folks? He wasn't able to carry out this mission. It was foiled. It was foiled because of John Andre being stopped by those three militiamen of John Paulding, Isaac Van Wert, and David Williams. Yes, Benedict Arnold may have defected, but it didn't bring... The, it didn't bring the results that they were expecting. So how can they? How can the British now even trust this guy? Is he really one of them? I don't think so. Benedict Arnold's just desperate about trying to fit in somewhere that he can't even hold himself accountable for um, for having a for having blown as big of an assignment like this one. The three-man uh, delegation under General Clinton tried once again to persuade General Washington in returning John Andre back to New York, but Washington did not budge. Smart on Washington. The Board of Inquiry, and you want to talk about drama in a uh, courtroom, not a modern-day courtroom like we know today, given that this uh, hearing was held at the, uh, at the uh, church in uh, Tappan, being um, right here, the uh, Reformed Church of Tappan. The Board of Inquiry was deadlocked on Andre's sentencing, 6-4 and 6 against hanging, but come October 2nd, 1780, the, the state of deadlock became, it was non-existent. 12 p.m. was the time of execution, uh, the time for which it was slated. Prior to execution happening, Washington ordered all shutters closed to prevent getting spotted from the large crowd on the hill where the execution was due to occur. John Andre was surrounded by officers on each end, including 500 dragoons. It's a lot of dragoons, but it's also necessary means of, pro 
of preventing John Andre from trying to do anything unbecoming in terms of trying to escape. The officer that was present at Andre's execution was Brigadier uh, General John Glover, the execution being at Tappan, New York, on October 2, 1780. A horse-drawn wagon carried a black coffin. Ah, black seen as a time, you know... You know, black is one of those interesting colors. Um, it, there's a reason why Supreme United States Supreme Court justices wear um, black. That is the color for their robes because it represents neutrality. But for an execution like John Andre's, there's no neutrality. The black coffin is to represent um, bad omen. It's supposed to represent a bad deed that has occurred, it probably should also serve as a deterrent for everybody else watching to not do something so um, dangerous. So in other words, there has to be a lesson taught here. Apparently, even the Marquis de Lafayette wept as John Andre was hanging. Maybe it was because John Andre had tried so valiantly hard to uh, defend himself. But no matter how valiantly one defends themselves, in this particular case, there has to be some kind of uh, lesson taught. And if there is one thing that George Washington can't tolerate, is that if, okay, if Andre's life were spared, what does that say for the Continental Army? There is a greater risk of, there could be a greater risk of the Continental Army uh, falling apart even more. Uh, there's a greater likelihood that uh, more actions of mistrust and uh, and betrayals will happen. Washington has to send a message to everyone that look, this cannot be tolerated. John Andre may not have been one of our 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 own men, but we cannot be surrounded by men like him who are going to um, carry out missions thanks to someone else from within us who defected. We just can't have this stuff. Period. So John Andre um, was placed onto this wagon, stood, and he stood in the coffin. He stood in this black coffin, folks, where he removed his hat. And normally, someone else would place would have placed the rope around his neck, but John Andre took it upon himself to place the rope around his neck. He covered his eyes with his own handkerchief. He knew that this was the end, the end of the road. Once the horses pulled the wagon from underneath, Andre was found swinging per arc-like motion back and forth from the left to the right. In the midst of the crowd's horror, shock, after he was found pronounced dead by means of hanging, he was uh, buried immediately where he hung to death. John Andre was only 30 years old when he died, folks. He was born in 1750, about five or six years um, shy of when the Seven Years' War broke out. He was only 30 years old. And John Andre did not come from a poor family. He, you know, he came from actually from a decent, well-to-do family in England. But he died. He died, uh, maybe it's fair to say that he died taking all the burden, knowing that Benedict Arnold betrayed him and that Benedict Arnold did not go could not go through with this plot but then again it's because John Andre was caught somebody sadly had to take the fall and it was John Andre that did 
Now, what do you know, just um, just a little over 40 years after Andre died in 1821, Britain's Duke of York requested and got approval to have Andre's remains reinterred at a place called Poet's Corner at Westminster Abbey. So in case any of you all are wondering where John Andre's buried, he's not buried in New York, or I should say in the United States, he's buried in England. John Andre, yes, he was only 30 years old when he was hung on uh, October October 4th of 1780, uh, Congress's Board of War removed Arnold's name from the list of officers. And what do you know? Benedict Arnold wrote back to Washington expressing concerns for his family. Well, I think to sum it up here, folks, to, as we end this podcast episode, George Washington was not interested in wanting to harm Arnold's family. He had empathy. He felt sorry for Hannah. It's fair to say that he would have felt sorry for Hannah and for Benedict's sons. So, okay, he's not interested in harming Arnold's family, but if there's one thing he will never forget and has every reason to never forget about was the fact that ben- that Benedict Arnold, the man whom he probably had to stick his neck out for multiple occasions, did something so despicable, something so unthinkable that this was a uh, wound, like a stab in the heart that would never go away. And, you know, here Benedict Arnold says at Saratoga, I wish it had been my heart and not my leg. I'm almost wondering if George Washington would be saying right now, I wish it had been my heart. In other words, maybe I, sh- maybe I don't want to be alive because what's gonna, what could unfold next? Who's going to be the next defector? Well, for George Washington, yes, he's not interested in harming Arnold's family, but he'll never forget Benedict Arnold's treason. Nobody would have, regardless of whether they were uh, an officer or a soldier, an everyday civilian, this is something you don't forget. This is probably the biggest news event of many people's lifetimes during this time in which they're living in. As a matter of fact, historians now can still say to this day that Benedict Arnold was America's biggest um, defector, traitor. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this episode. We've learned um, we've learned now what has happened to John Andre, and it is fair to say that while Nathan Hale did not betray his country, and yet he was um, hung by um, he was sentenced to death by hanging. Another man who sold out his country is in the hands is on the side of the enemy but when we're on the air again next we'll we'll find out if in fact he has a real good long-term standing being on the side of the enemy i can tell you right now it doesn't actually sound good based upon what we've uh, learned uh, just a few minutes ago but we do have to ask ourselves as given that the war is still not over yet will benedict arnold really be considered a true British redcoat. Well, thank you for your time as always, and uh, wherever you all may live in the world, continue to stay safe, and thank you for your uh, broad support. Without you guys, I'm not sure where I would be, but you all are amazing listeners and just continue to keep up the good work. Take care for now.